You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the fabulous Fine Stones, 54 Below. Before we get started this evening, just a polite reminder, please take this moment to silence your cell phones. Also, there is no flash photography, please. Enjoy the show. Ladies and gentlemen, Seth sucks. Welcome back to the Fine Science 54 Below podcast. I'm Nella Vera, Director of Marketing. And I'm Adrian Carnani, one of the marketing associates here. Thank you all so much for tuning into our second episode. Nella and I, along with the rest of our team, are so excited to be bringing you all into the behind-the-scenes world of Broadway's living room. Last week, we launched with one of Broadway's most endearing leading men, Norm Lewis, who sat down with us to talk about his show, Naughty and Nice. I was lucky to go to his opening night featuring the incredible Sierra Bogus, who he has starred with in both The Little Mermaid and Phantom of the Opera on Broadway. There was also Seth Rudetsky and Jack Potnick, who did a hilarious drag number. Um, I and know last night he had Jessica, Jessica Vosk. Jessica Vosk, who really brought down the house with the most gorgeous oh, holy night I've ever heard. It's such a fabulous show to have here during the holidays. It's inspiring and joyful, and, and audiences have loved it. And of course, this week, we have Michael Feinstein, who is here traditionally every single year for Christmas week. The end of the year is just always such a special and fun time here, and it's also just a really great reminder to say thank you to all the people who make Feinstein's 54 Below such a special place. We have this incredible staff, a wonderful, dedicated team of servers, and a whole team of folks that you never see upstairs us in the marketing department and so many other people who are working every day to make this such a special place. And of course, let's not forget our wonderful audiences, particularly our Club 54 members. We really want to send a big thank you to everyone who came to the club this year, whether it was your first time or whether you've been coming here for years. We're so grateful for your support. We're so grateful for your friendship and for your presence. Of course, they come to see the spectacular shows that we put on this year, over 700 shows. We had so many highlights and stellar moments. Uh, Adrian, what were some of your favorite shows? Wow, it has been a really incredible year here at 54. I think probably one of our best ever in terms of programming. Um, So it's hard to pick out favorites, but I'll do my best. One that I know is on both of our lists was this really special show that Sherry Renee Scott and Norbert Leo Butts did with us. Actually, Mm -hmm. they did two separate runs of it, and it was just this inspirational, heartbreaking, funny, tender story of their relationship over the last several decades. Um, It was was amazing how personal it was and how they allowed the audience into their story and we're, we're so grateful to have had them. I absolutely loved Sierra Bogus's show. She is one of my favorites and I never get tired of her singing from Phantom of the Opera. We did a couple really fun performances with Bonnie Milligan and Natalie Walker. We've had some great musicals and concert. I always love um, the Calloway sisters, Liz Calloway and Anne Hampton Calloway. We had them a couple of times this year. I particularly also love Mauricio Martinez's show, which was about his journey to America as an immigrant and how he straddles uh, being a Mexican and also being now an American. So that was just a beautiful show. I loved, loved Nicole Henry sings Whitney Houston. Every single night she brought down the house. And of course, one of my other favorites was Brian Stokes Mitchell, who is one of our leading men and 
always puts on a great show. There are so many more, I can't even count. We could be listing them all day. We had the return of the massively popular Broadway Princess Party. Uh, last year for New Year's, we had Erin Tveit, oh uh, currently God. starring on Broadway in Moulin Rouge. And so now, as we wrap up the holiday season this year, we're really thrilled to have been able to sit down with one of the artists that is ringing in the New Year this year. Mm-hmm. It's New Year's is actually one of the most exciting nights we have here at 54. We're so close to Times Square that you're truly right in the heart of one of the world's biggest celebrations. Every year we have two fabulous artists for back-to-back -back shows to celebrate the start of the new year. Of course, this year, our late show is the absolutely magical Annalee Ashford, one of our favorites. And she's done the show before, uh, and we love to have her back because it's a fun, joyful evening and it's a great way to ring in the new year. This year, um, in addition to Anna Lee welcoming the new year and also the new decade, we have for our early 7 p.m. show the absolutely fabulous Seth Sykes. He is a self-described modern boy, but he certainly has an old-fashioned, all-out belt. And he has made his name paying tribute to iconic divas like Judy Garland, Liza Minnelli, Bernadette Peters, and more. He's played sold-out houses here, and at other venues for years, um, and he served as the associate director on shows like The Nance, Tribes, and recently the Tony Award-winning best musical, The Band's Visit. So to welcome the 2020s in style, Seth and his seven-piece band will pay tribute to the Roaring Twenties, the 1920s, with his show, and this is a bit of a tongue twister, 2020s Songs for 2020. I'm Seth Sykes, and you're listening to the Feinstein's 54 Below podcast. Seth, welcome to our podcast. I'm so happy to be here. So tell us, you're going to be ringing in the new year at Feinstein's 54 Below with your show, which is called 2020's Songs for 2020. How did you come up with the idea for this show? Well, as you uh, mentioned, I've been performing the songs of these ladies, uh, which is uh, not exactly how I wanted to be known in the business as the guy who sings women's songs all the time. It just happened to be how I started by singing the Judy Garland songs that I grew up loving. And so I've been trying to think of something to do uh, that would would be not, you know, moving on to Barbara Streisand or something like that. A lot of the songs I sing anyway, I noticed, are from the 20s, and a lot of the songs I love the most are from the 20s. And so I was thinking about one of these days doing a 20s show, and then when 54 Below asked me to do a show on New Year's Eve, I thought, well, it's the eve of the 20s. I might as well do an all-20s show. So... I think it's a sort of fun idea. I know the title is a little bit hard to say. <laughs> <laughs> it sure is. Uh, I'm glad I don't have to say it uh, too many times. So how did you come about with the set list for the show? So I've been listening basically nonstop to 20s recordings on Spotify. There are tons of, tons of recordings from that uh, era and lots of playlists other people have compiled, as well as going to on Monday and Tuesday nights at... Uh, Iguana, which is actually just down the street from Studio 54 and 54 Below. There's a restaurant called Iguana, and they have a band there that plays every Monday and Tuesday called uh, Vince Giordano and the Nighthawks. 
And they play every Monday and Tuesday orchestrations that are actually from the 20s and 30s. He's preserved all this music. I think he has a whole house full of music. So hearing all that music played with those or- old orchestrations, with that old sound, also excited me. And I got all these books. You know, I'm just constantly, I'm drowning in 20s music right now. <laughs> So um, you're a fairly young artist, yet you're drawn to these classic standards and the music of a past generation. Many of your contemporaries, your artists your age, are drawn to contemporary music or pop, but you're singing these classics. Why? <laughs> I wish I could put my finger on exactly what it is, but it did start when I was a little boy. I, I was, my friends would tease me because I would be on the playground singing I got rhythm, or you know, all these old old songs that I that I learned watching old, old MGM musicals, mostly ones starring Judy Garland, who was my childhood obsession. But I, I don't know what it is about the the songs. They, but I can't. I cannot actually sing pop music. Like if I got up and tried to sing a, a contemporary song, it would sound kind of silly. I only feel comfortable and alive when I'm singing these really old old tunes, and somehow it clicks and it just works somehow with my brain and with my voice. You know, I don't know exactly what it is, but this is the only kind of song that I can respond to, really. Um, another question, kind of along those lines, given that you're young, why cabaret? What's so special about that art form? Ah, interesting you ask. I have never really been a, a fan of cabaret. I've been a theater person forever, and I'd seen a few of them. But when I got the idea to do perform these Judy Garland songs a few years ago, the most obvious outlet to do that was at 54 Below. And it was supposed to be a one-night-only show for all my friends. I was going to sing these Judy Garland songs that I had been singing around the piano at piano bars for all these years for all my friends. It was supposed to be one night only, and then and it, it got a lot of attention, and then it sold well, so they asked me to do it again. And then critics started coming, and, and then I got an agent, and I got a press agent, and suddenly I was, do, I was a cabaret singer which had never really occurred to me before. I didn't know, I hadn't thought about that as a, as a path for me. And I think what's exciting about it is that you get to take these old songs and you can sort of do whatever you want to with them, really. And I try to take them and twist them and rewrite the lyrics. I have a really good team of people who help me arrange and orchestrate and write new fun lyrics to make them fit whatever experience I'd like to tell about in my show. So, for example, like one of the songs I sing and we'll be singing from the 20s, it's actually a Judy Garland song as well. It's called I'm Nobody's Baby. And in the song, she talks about not being able to find a boyfriend or something. I took the bridge and changed the lyric to being about meeting somebody on, a, on, a, on, an, app, on an app and then rejecting me and saying... I wish we'd met when you were 22 and all about me being too old for, you know, a certain type. So, you know, I take the songs and I, I, I try to update them. Even though they're 100 years old, I try to make them apply to today. So do you think that the songs still resonate with people even without updating them? Or do you feel the topics are universal? Because um, you're delivering these classic songs to a new generation. I think they get it, I, it, it, even without the updating, I think, especially the good songs. I mean, well, first of all, just the sound alone of, of what those songs sounded like in the 20s, it, you just can't hear it without getting happy. And then, of course, you know, the message, look, the message of most of these songs, I, I think of any songs of all time, don't really change. It's either like, my man left me, or, or nobody loves me, or happy days are here again. These, these kinds of ideas are universal and I think timeless. So yeah, I think people respond to the 
to the songs. Yeah, and particularly the 20s, which was just post-war. So people were probably feeling crazy, joyous. Exactly. But also there was prohibition. So it was kind of this (laughs) roaring time, but everyone was drinking uh, in private in secret. So it was this sort of extra manic energy, I think, to some of these songs. And uh, in private clubs, too. Yeah, I think cabaret, just to go back to, you know, what makes it so special, it's an intimate setting, so you have to really put yourself out there. And I think people see, regardless of what the show's about, I think people see the truth about a performer. Do you find that, or do you feel like there's still a little bit of a shield like you would with a theater piece when you're creating a character and you're somebody else? I think you. I think it's pretty raw. I don't think there can be much of a shield there. And if there is, I don't think that the audience would respond in the way that they do when you're very honest. I sometimes maybe edge on a little bit, going a little bit too far with my honesty, uh, or you know, tell, talking too much about my heartbreak or my disappointments and. But I think that is part of what people have responded to my sh- in my shows is that that I they are these old songs, but I really do put a, a contemporary twist on them. And I think you have you know I, I try to do it with honesty, and uh, I think that's what people respond to. So let's talk about Judy Garland. You're considered a celebrated interpreter of Judy Garland, and just for our audience who's listening so that they understand your show. You're not doing an impression of Judy. No. So some people say that there's a channeling that happens sometimes, and I, I don't disagree with that entirely. Because I grew up listening to her music and watching her movies, I sort of do have a tendency to sort of sound a little bit like her, but there's no conscious effort to uh, imitate her or do an impression of her. A lot of people who hear me sing, they're, they're like, oh, you, you're not doing an impersonation at all, and they're surprised by that because I'm the guy who does Judy Garland songs. As I say, there's, there's sometimes a little bit of her sneaks through in, in my singing because I'm an old-fashioned singer. I'm a belter, and there aren't a lot of old-fashioned belters anymore, especially not boys. Boys tend to be either more croony or, you know, if they're a contemporary singer, they'll sing pop and riffs and all that kind of stuff. I don't do that. I sing full-throated, full-out, like like Judy and Barbara. Speaking of Judy, even a couple of years ago, we had Michael Feinstein, and he did a Judy Garland show. And again, he wasn't doing an impersonation, obviously. He was doing his own tribute to her. How did your fascination with her start? But then also, why do you think people are still fascinated with her after all of this time? My fascination began with a movie called Summerstock. And I grew up on a, in a small town on a farm in, outside Paris, Texas. In this movie, Judy plays a farm owner going around doing her chores and singing songs like, Howdy neighbor, happy harvest. And she's you know, driving her tractor and singing these songs. And I was just completely obsessed with this, with this woman and that, the, her voice the power of her voice. I had seen Wizard of Oz and liked that too, of course, but this grown-up Judy Garland was something incredible to me, the talent, that, but also the charm of her. and I, I was completely mesmerized by it. Now, later in life, I learned that so many other gay guys are attracted to this same person, this incredible talent. And, of course, in interviews all the time, people say, why? Why are you attracted to her like this? And why are, why are all these other gay p- people attracted to her? Why is she the greatest icon of all time? And it's very hard to put your finger on. I have a couple theories. One is kind of silly, which is 
we have great taste, and she's <laughs> the greatest talent who ever lived, so <laughs> automatically we're going to like her. But secondly, there is this thing about her. You know how she sings uh, The Man That Got Away mm-hmm. in A Star Is Born? There's something about uh, something about hearing her uh, sing songs like that about the man that got away, the man we lost, that you can sort of Im- immerse yourself into. And when you're a little guy like me in, in Texas singing in the mirror with a, a, a hairbrush, you're, you're placing yourself into that song in a really sort of profound way. I don't think it's because she had this great tragedy. I think some people think that that's... I didn't... When I fell in love with Judy Garland, I didn't know about the tragic parts of her life, and I tend not to focus on that part. I just think, you know, I truly think she's the greatest performer who ever lived and I can't stop I can't get enough of it well first of all gay men have taste yes (laughs) you just said that do you think it has something to do with you know these songs about unrequited love yes maybe gay men of a certain age coming of age at a time when you couldn't pursue an open love life and so you're kind of drowning yourself in these themes and these songs these wonderful torch songs some of them that's what I thought. That's anyway. exactly that's exactly <laughs> what I was trying to say. That's exactly what I I mean. Same thing for you know Liza Minnelli singing. Maybe this time mm-hmm. you know you get lost in that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Now I heard because my staff did some research that you did meet Liza Minnelli, and did you sing with her too? No, sadly I never got to sing with her. <laughs> so tell us. I did meet so her. So how did a couple that times happen? actually? And, and does she know that you do a tribute to her mom and how come about? So how did you meet her? She was going to see Spam a lot on Broadway. And I had a friend who worked backstage and he told me that Liza was coming to see the show and did I want to come and try to meet her. So I showed up that night at the Schubert and I waited on stage and I met her. I talked to her. I know I shook her hand. But I couldn't speak. I was so I was so starstruck. And then then they escorted us out to this other alley, and I was I was alone with Liza Minnelli, just her and me, for about four minutes. And she was smoking. And you know, this is a sermon I worshipped my whole life, and I couldn't think of a single thing to say to her. All I could say was, "Did you like the show?" And she said, <laughs> "Yeah. Did you like it?" I said, "Yeah." And that was sort of all I could do. I was just completely frozen. And then we, the door opened, her car drove up, she got in the car, and I thought, Seth, get in that car, <laughs> get in, go home with Liza, this is your chance. <laughs> but of course I didn't. And that was one, of the time, one time I met her, I actually met her one other time, she was sitting next to me at an opening night uh, downtown of uh, the Scottsboro Boys. She came and she sat next to me, and, and Jim Caruso was sitting one, uh, one seat over, and he was friends with Liza, and he said, Liza, do you know Seth? And she said, of course I do, honey. <laughs> of course, she had no idea who I am, but that was the other time I met Liza. And there was a second part to your question, which was... Oh, I just wanted to know if she knew that you sang a tribute to her mom, you know. So when I did my Liza show, so I did, you know, like six or seven Judy Garland tributes at 54, and then, then I decided to do a Liza Minnelli tribute for her 70th birthday. And by that time, I had gotten a press agent, my press agent, Scott Gorenstein, who was Liza's press agent for a while, and he told her about it. She, of course, had moved to L.A. at that point, so she wasn't in town or anything to come see it. I'm not sure she would have anyway. But she, she wished me a very good show, and she uh, apparently gave it her blessing. So that's all I know. <laughs> that's great. And how, how convenient that your press agent was also her press agent. That's yes, really it's helpful. very cool. Very cool. 
Well, since you did your first Judy Garland shows, you've done some other, you've added other divas to your canon. Can you tell us a little bit about those ladies and why you're drawn to them also in their music? Sure. Uh, the second one was Liza. I think I just explained what that was. Uh, she was another childhood obsession. I had a VHS tape of her uh, live performance at Radio City Music Hall that I watched obsessively as a kid. If you haven't seen it, watch it. It's truly a, a magnificent performance in the old style. And so I thought naturally the next person to do would be the person I love most next, and that was Liza. So I did a tribute to her, did that concert a few times at 54 Below as well. And then I did, I thought, well, I have to do something new. So meant to get away from doing these diva tributes, but uh, I thought, well, I better do a Bernadette Peters tribute because she's my third love. <laughs> and when I first moved to New York, uh, my first job was selling programs for Bernadette Peters and Gypsy. Mm. And so I got to watch Bernadette perform that role over and over again every night. And I would always come in and watch the end of Act One, everything's coming up roses. And sometimes even on nights when I wasn't working, I'd come and watch Rose's turn. It was just this incredible experience. And I had just moved to New York. I was only 18. And Isn't so that amazing. Uh, well, I, I used to sell souvenirs at Beauty and the Beast. I got to see all the bells, you uh, know, from like Susan Egan to what De- Deborah Gibson and oh uh, wow, uh, you know, just like they went through a whole progression of artists and. At that time, I thought, wow, you know, the show was the show, but it was just fun to watch all the moments that you loved. Oh, yeah. And just like run in anytime you wanted to because we were there. You're just there for, you know, the whole show. So it's um, so cool. I mean, a lot of the shows I worked on either as an usher or selling programs, you you don't really care. You've watched it a few times and then you don't really care to see it anymore. But with Gypsy, I would just go back like, you know, as much as possible. Lucky that you landed at that particular theater. It's true. It's true. So, sorry, I interrupted you. So, talking about the other divas that you've added. So then, when I decided to do another show, I thought, well, I better do this tribute to her because I love so much of her music. And and with her music, of course, with her canon comes all the Sondheim music. And those are the three divas I've done so far. One more question about the divas and then we'll move on. Okay. Uh, how come there's no male divas? Oh, that's a good question. Well, first of all, for whatever reason, I li- I respond to these female belting belting songs. You know, if I, I wouldn't sound very good singing the Impossible Dream, it wouldn't make a lot of sense. But who are the male divas? I mean, was it because do songwriters not write these amazing songs for men? I don't. You know, I think it's I think it's I mean, the there's second some, part. There's you know the impossible dream like we we just had Stokes at the club Ryan Stokes Mitchell yes and he didn't have that in his set list but one night the audience was just not having it and they were not letting him off stage so he sang impossible dream <laughs> and were they screaming <laughs> impossible they, dream well he did his encore which was I think wonderful world what a wonderful world uh. and they just started screaming for impossible dream and were not letting him go and so he had to go back and sing it for them but he he didn't have that in his set list I think it's probably he's probably sung it so much that he wanted to try some other stuff and he had great orchestrations sort of bossa nova type orchestrations um speaking of you know being able to do songs in whatever way right you you feel like doing them at that point he came to mind immediately as a, a male diva yeah and you know there are a lot of great male singers on Broadway that that extra you know well, you... yeah, they're usually not not necessarily singing these love songs or heart like they're singing Phantom exactly and the confrontation from Les Mis yes 
or stars, but I think they probably don't have the emotional pull that some of the songs written for women have. I agree. Which and, but, I think it's changing, though, now. Do you think what, so? Well, like well, Darren Hansen. Yeah. Yeah. And some of these other shows, but... But again, th- like that's pop music. I can't sing. Right. So I, I think the reason you said a few minutes ago was that maybe the, they don't write songs like that for men. So all these parts, especially from back when, from the golden age, were for these great ladies. Yeah. And that's the kind of songs I like to sing. Yeah. In addition to your amazing cabaret career, you've been an associate director on various shows, uh, most recently uh, the Tony-winning Best Musical, The Band's Visit. Tell us about what your role has been on these different shows and what does an associate director do? Well, it depends on the production. It changes all the time. It depends on the director. I've been assisting David Cromer for many years. We've done like seven or six or seven shows together, and he's the director of The Band's Visit. So we finally got to work on a a Broadway musical together. We've done a lot of off-Broadway things and a regional thing. So it is everything from sometimes you're getting coffee for the director, and uh, sometimes you are rehearsing understudies. And if a show is lucky enough to run for a, a long while, which we had, the band's visit has a healthy run on Broadway, you are responsible for maintaining the show to make sure that the, the actors don't get out of hand, especially with a show like The Band's Visit, which is a very sober-paced show that actors don't start to either rush or get, make things too big. You want, you want to be able to make sure that the show maintains the feeling that it had on opening night. So, and then, of course, there, if there's a tour like there is for the band's visit, you monitor a lot of auditions, see a lot of people who come in, and then eventually uh, who you then show to the director to be cast in the tour. And then when the tour is running, as it is now, you go and check on the tour and give notes and work with understudies and make sure that things aren't getting too uh, jokey, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So it sounds like a lot of responsibility. It can be can be, yes. How did you enjoy working on The Band's Visit? I loved working on The Band's Visit so much because the material was so great. From the day I read it and heard the demo, I thought this is a really special and magical show. And if it if it's given a chance and if it's done properly, then I think it, it big things will happen. And that was before, it, that was when it was off Broadway. Of course, it moved to Broadway, which surprised a lot of us because it's such a small, gem-like, strange thing. And then to have uh, received the reviews it received and then to, you know, see it win all those Tonys was just, just as thrilling thrilling as can be. It was a great, great show to work on. Plus, it's only an hour and a half, so you don't have to, <laughs> you get to go home early. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's such a beautiful show. One of my favorites. Speaking of divas, maybe one day you'll have a Katrina Lake show. <laughs> uh, yes, that's true. How, uh, listen, how she, is she to work with? Oh, she's just, first of all, she's uh. the most, she's so professional. You know, she, I think she came in knowing all her lines on, you know, on the first day. There's not a, an ounce of drama or ego or anything like that. She's just, just, just like the consummate professional. And then what she would do with the scenes every time, it was just, it was just amazing. And I, and we were sitting there thinking, where did this person come from? She's she's not 25. She's been around, but she hasn't had a role like this. And so, honestly, the, the thing I'm looking to forward to the most on Broadway this season is her and company. I think yeah. that's so exciting. Well, I, along with other people, are obsessed with her and just how incredible she is. And you're right. She sort of came out of nowhere, even though she has a resume and 
you know, but had never had a part like this, I think, that showed off everything that she can do. Yeah, and I think it was it's pretty cool and exciting that they gave her the, the, this part that they, they took, you know, they didn't give it to just some star. They let her take it because, because wow, no one will forget that performance who saw it. Nope, not at all. Amazing, amazing. You mentioned that you grew up in Paris, Texas. Mm-hmm. How did you uh, get to New York? I discovered musicals in high school. Uh, well, I knew about movie musicals, but I didn't know about theater. Small town, not a lot of theater. But when I got to high school, I was in choir, and they asked me if I would be in the musical, or audition for the musical. So I did, and then I you know, totally just fell in love with the theater. And my high school drama teacher told me about this uh, program called the Broadway Theater Project, which Ann Ranking used to run in Florida. And so I went to theater, I auditioned, somehow I got in, and I went to theater camp and I met all these Broadway type kids. And I thought, oh, this is the kind of people I need to be around. It was like, it was such an amazing discovery. And so... I didn't know much at the time about musical theater schools or anything like that, but I knew I knew that Broadway was in New York, and I came to New York and saw some shows, and I thought, I have to go, I have to move to New York. So of the schools I auditioned for, the one that I got into that was in New York was Circle on the Square Theater School, and so I got accepted to that, and I moved to New York to an apartment in Queens, and I was eight, two weeks after I graduated from high school, and suddenly I was living in the thick of it in New York and selling programs on Broadway and going to school in the basement of Circle in the Square. And, and here I am 18 years later. Wow. You make it sound so easy. <laughs> <laughs> Just move and start working and somebody will cast you or give you a job. Uh, when I look back, I, don't, I really don't know how <laughs> I had the guts to do that at 18. Yeah. I don't either because I had to go through a full four-year college and then grad school before I thought that I sh- would be allowed to work in the theater. Wow. Not, just because I had Where no did you e- go? So I went to Georgetown, but I went to a real high school that didn't have any arts. So I went to Georgetown thinking I was going to be a lawyer and then discovered theater there. And I thought, well, that's not something people work at unless you know somebody. Because I thought it was like film. You have to know somebody. You know, it's a mystical thing that how how do you get in how do you get into a union how do you by happenstance I got a job at the Shakespeare Theater in DC and worked there for two years and then realized oh they have grad schools for this but still really afraid still too timid to do anything with my life but my artistic director for the Shakespeare Theater Michael Kahn wrote me a recommendation to Columbia and so I got in and went there and then I realized oh this is the path and other people do it without grad school, but I had no clue. I had no connections. Nobody in my family, in my circle of friends, had you know had anything to do with any of these types of businesses, entertainment, theater, TV, film. And so I think you moving here at 18 is incredible because you know, I was in my 20s before I thought, I'm going to apply for that internship <laughs> and apply to sell souvenirs at Beauty and the Beast. Well, at least you have an education. <laughs> I have a two-year you know, certificate from Circle in the Square Theater School. But well, and a lot of student debt, an education with a lot of student debt. So. <laughs> well, but you mentioned connections, and I think that's an interesting point to bring up. When I did my first show at 54 Below, the only reason why that would ever have happened is because I knew Jennifer Ashley Tupper, who's the booking person there, because we had worked together 
as we were we were production assistants on Sondheim's 80th birthday concert. Uh, we were both assisting Lonnie Price, and that's where I first met Jen. And we were both these, you know, young Sondheim fanatics. And and then you know we followed each other on Facebook. We knew who each other were. But I hadn't performed in 10 years when I did my concert. And I happened to know her and said, I think I can sell it out for one night and get all my friends there, you know, for this one night. Here's this idea I have. Uh, It's a crazy idea. I know I haven't performed in a long time, but trust me on this. And through that connection and because I knew so many people in the theater who came and music directors to orchestrate and all these things, uh, it was through those connections that I was able to do it to begin with. So it is a lot about connection. But I think for younger people, I think it's easier than it was for me 20 years ago. And part of that has to do with the internet because we didn't have Facebook. Um, We couldn't easily invite people or keep connected or, or even find out who people were. Like right now, even at my job at 54 or with any of the Broadway shows that we market, people can always reach out to me on LinkedIn or on Facebook or on Twitter and say, hey, can I do you mind if I pick your brain or can I have an informational interview or I need career advice? Would you meet with me? And that's so easy now where it wasn't, you know, 20 years ago that didn't exist. And so you are like, how do I get into this business? There, there was no way that there, they weren't like directories anywhere that you could even look up. Um, there was theatrical index, but that's about it. And I think now technology has made it a lot easier for young people who want to break into the business. I'm sure. Oh, I'm sure. I'm just looking at you thinking, you can't be that much older than I'm me. I'm very old. Um. <laughs> I do I do remember the, the- theatrical uh, index, though. That was it's still, still around. Is it still yeah, around? Yeah, but it's, um, it's online also, but we still get the paper version at the office because that's the classic. But I, I, you know, I do think it's a lot easier to reach out to people. Like you can always send somebody a DM and say, hey, and they can ignore you, but a lot of times... I find people in our business fairly generous oh, sure. about helping each other Sure, I and mean, keeping connected. What advice would you have for somebody who's looking to break into theater or cabaret? I would say make connections, you know, meet people in the business, befriend people. And that's the way I've made everything in, in my career happen. I, I, most of the directors I've assisted, I've either met socially or had a friend recommend me to them or met them in a bar. You know, David Cromer and I met at Marie's Crisis. No, really? <laughs> yeah. I don't. Ten years ago. How do I not picture David at Marie's Crisis? Oh, he's That's a big, he's a hilarious. big he's a big show queen. He loves singing songs it's around the piano. I always think about his plays being so cerebral and lyrical and serious, and even following his work from you know when he was at Writers Theater, all of those shows. <laughs> you know, that's the last thing I associate with Marie's Crisis Piano Bar. Isn't that funny? I keep telling people, you know, producers and uh, people, I tell them, I'm like, you know, he's dying to direct a, a musical. He was he was dying to direct the revival of Annie and got very close and didn't didn't work out. He had a sort of serious version of how it would look in his head and and he wanted, you know, he's dying to do a Little Shop and now he wants to do Evita. I, I wish people would, <laughs> I wish people would think of him more in terms of musicals, but I do, you know, they probably worry that he's make it too dark or something. I, but he wouldn't. Oh, I don't think it's that. I think it's just that he creates such a beautiful work that is so classy and smart and intelligent. Maybe they don't necessarily associate that with big production numbers. Um, so if you have a, a beautiful play like Tribes, that's when you would go to a David Cromer. But um, but that's good to know. So, hey, world. Hey, world. <laughs> David wants to do some big show, <laughs> uh, show-tuny musicals. 
Last question. What are your professional goals at this point? That's a very hard question. (laughs) I don't know. Right now, all I'm thinking about day and night is December 31st, 2019. (laughs) Got to get past that. And I, I'm taking a step back from AD. I've also got the, the, the Bands Visit Tour is still going. So we have, we're putting in a new Dina oh, while, wow. on the tour uh, in January. If the right show comes along that moves me, uh, I may jump back in the AD seat. I'm doing a lot of soul searching, figuring out what I want to do next because I'm a little burnt out on the directorial side. But I think I'm going to keep doing these cabarets. They, they seem to have caught on somehow. And even though I never expected to become a cabaret singer, and still, in some ways it's funny for me to even call myself that, I enjoy singing these songs and people seem to come out. Seth, the accidental cabaret singer. <laughs> exactly. Thanks so much for joining us. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Seth Sykes will celebrate the 20s at Fine Science 54 Below on New Year's Eve, December 31st at 7 p.m. Tickets are available at 54below.com. You've been listening to the Fine Science 54 Below podcast, part of the Broadway Podcast Network. Subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.